This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mildred Philippus. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 122. I'm your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is Joe. And this is Stella. And Don will be joining us uh, a little bit later in the podcast, but he will be joining us a little later. We have a total of four books to cover. We're covering all of the comic news and comic book reviews for the first tier of books from the Batman Universe from August 4th through August 17th. Out of all of these books, uh, as I mentioned, we have four books to cover. So uh, there's just a little bit of news, so let's get straight into comic news. What have you got for me? The very first thing we have is on August 12th, DC released the solicitations for November. Among the solicitations, uh, we already previously had reported this in the past, that uh, Harley Quinn was going to be getting uh, her own series. For some reason, they're starting it with... Harley Quinn number zero instead of a number one. Not sure why that is, but it's happening nonetheless. Um, outside of that, uh, November will be the month that a number of the books will be tying in with Batman Zero Year. Uh, among these books will include Batgirl, Batwing, Catwoman, Nightwing, Detective Comics. Um, all will be tying into Zero Year in some way. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting to note is that Gail Simone is not going to be doing the uh, writing for the Batgirl Zero Year issue. It will be done by Marguette uh, Bennett, who did the Batman Annual uh, with Scott Snyder last month, and she's doing some of the issues during uh, Villains Month. Nothing related to Batman, but I wanted to note that just because it's interesting that Gail Simone herself isn't doing that mm-hmm. after it was announced that the whole reason that they were doing the tie-in was because all of a bunch of the creators that you know got in touch with Scott Snyder and said we'd love to be able to tie our characters to Zero Year in some way. Knowing that Gail Simone is the normal writer on the Batgirl book, I find it a little odd that they're having a guest writer come onto the book. I don't know if this is a permanent gig or if she's permanently replacing Gail Simone or if this is just something that she's doing for Zero Year. But it just goes back to kind of what I said uh, last month when we reviewed, or the last episode when we reviewed the Batman Annual on, I guess, the only way you can really get anywhere at DC is being a student of Scott Snyder. What I think is interesting is it's not just Batman titles tying into the Zero Year. I saw at least uh, The Flash is doing it. So I guess they're not going to be tied in directly to Batman it's probably just a story set in that time period but uh, we'll have to wait and see to whether that's good or not uh, the Harley thing you said you weren't really sure you know why are they starting off with the zero thing and I can see your argument but I also feel like this could be something that they do with all new books because I mean every new book that comes out now it will have missed that September zero month. So I think this is going to be a way to explore her backstory. And I didn't read Suicide Squad number zero, so I'm not sure if they were able to look at her origin there. But I think if we start off with zero, zero will pretty pretty much be 
you know, in my mind, it's probably going to be like a, a one shot just with this is the origin of Harley Quinn, and then one is going to really start off that series. So I can I, I feel like it does make sense. As for the guest with quotes writer, um, it is a little strange. I don't know if it's just. You know, Snyder wants some of his handpicked people to do the Zero and tie-in. It doesn't really have anything to do with what Gail Simone is doing currently with this Batgirl murderer. So perhaps it didn't really um, fit with what she wanted to do and did, didn't bother her as much. Uh, I thought it was interesting because I did see the cover how much the character looks like the character on Beware the Batman, uh, just like young, and, and she sort of has that, that pixie, uh, pixie boy haircut or Peter Pan haircut. I'm not really sure how they call it. but um, So I'm surprised and not really surprised. I feel like Gail Simone's not ready to leave yet, especially with what you said about what she said at the panel at San Diego Comic-Con that, you know, she's got her team in place and it's, quote, the best team, end quote. So I, I feel like this is just a, a temporary stint, but who knows if, if it goes over well, maybe we will see uh, that woman come on more frequently. Now, there are, I, I, did, I forgot to mention, but there is a number of other books obviously coming out in the month of November that's that are also dealing with, the Batman universe. Uh, the Batman and Robin uh, issue will be entitled Batman and Carrie Kelly. That'll be number 25 of Batman and Robin. Um, so Carrie Kelly takes center stage in that series, even though she's pretty much had the stage for a good chunk of the series so far. Um, the Outside of that, uh, all of the other books, the, there's a bunch of mini, the, uh, there's a bunch of the digital comics that are being collected um, in addition to all of the other books that we have come to realize that are releasing every single month. Uh, Damien, Son of Batman, uh, number two is coming out um, alongside a number of other of the digital ones like Batman Little Gotham, number eight, uh, Beware the Batman, number two, Batman Arkham and Hinge, 20, Batman 66, number five, Batman Beyond Universe, number four, uh, Black and White, number three. So, I mean, there's a ton of other books that are coming out that are... I guess we would consider the third tier of the books. Um, outside of Zero Year and the and the digital books, uh, Forever Evil's obviously still going to be taking place, and uh, it's it's worth to note that uh, the cover of Justice League number twenty five has Nightwing prominently displayed on the cover. Um, so, as we suspected from some of the things we've heard in the past, Nightwing is going to play a pretty large role in. Uh, forever evil as we already had heard but uh, that he that uh, he's going to be part of that uh, also forever evil Ulcum war number two comes out and it, it the cover clearly shows that it's bane versus the court of owls um, so if you've been listening to our reviews of talon over on the point five cast it looks like a lot of that stuff that's been happening in Talon is going to come to a head in the Forever Evil Arkham War miniseries as well. So moving on to the only other bit of news we have, on August 12th there was an article that got posted up that uh, basically was talking about uh, the Dark Knight Returns. Um, this is the Frank Miller classic Batman story which features the fight between Superman and Batman. And uh, as we, if you if you listen to the normal cast, you may have heard us talking about 
the announcement for Man of Steel 2, including Batman, and the very specific passage that was read on stage during uh, the Hall H presentation by Warner Brothers at Comic-Con was from this series, and as it turns out, the sales for this specific comic um, has have risen in just the last month 161% when you compare the June sales of the books to July sales. It has set a record of for the most sales for a regular price DC Comics ebook. While we know that the movie isn't going to be based off of The Dark Knight Returns, it has been reported that Zack Snyder does have plans to talk with Frank Miller um, and The Man of Steel two sequel including Batman is going to come out in 2015 so a lot of that has to do with movie but it goes back to the source material from that passage that was originally read at Comic Con alright so with that that is all the news not a lot of news to go over so we're going to jump straight into our comic book reviews and the very first book we're reviewing is Nightwing number 23 maybe you didn't get the memo Oracle but I've been going by Nightwing for, oh, about a decade or so. Nightwing number 23, written by Kyle Higgins, art by Will Conrad. The issue starts off at the top of the John Hancock building, where Nightwing is dealing with a number of pranksters' henchmen. They uh, blew out the the skywalk so that uh, the people who are on the observation deck are in peril now. As he takes them out uh, briefly... Very quickly, actually, he has ha- happens to have to save a uh, coincidentally red-headed woman with the same build as uh, a certain redhead that we know from another series. Who dat? <laughs> as she uh, let goes, let, lets go of the actual building, Nightwing jumps to catch her, and uh, he is rewarded with a kiss because he saves her. Um, and then Nightwing returns to the Skywalk to interrogate one of the henchmen who he's been looking for over the last couple days, looking for the location of Prankster. Uh, Then we get some exposition about uh, a number of the different events that have happened throughout the city since the announcement that Prankster made in the last issue, including a giant fire at Navy Pier, uh, where the Ferris wheel is, uh, police basically putting the city on lockdown and around the city hall because people were so upset with the mayor, um, police dying all over the place. Uh, We see a press conference by the mayor talking about the fact that uh, all of these accusations that the prankster has said are completely false. We then see some news footage uh, where it is revealed that, in fact, the person that Mayor Cole has uh, been protecting is named Tony Zuko. This would be the person that we obviously have known all along as Tony Zuko. But then they talk about the fact that uh, Tony Zuko did in fact kill the Flying Grace or the parents of the Flying Graysons. And a picture is shown with only Dick and his parents in the in the image. We see Dick's roommate, Joey, talking to Michael over the phone about the horrific events that are being announced on the news station. It turns out Michael's at a location where the police believe that the prankster is. Um, As it turns out, the entire place is booby-trapped, and after a electric current kind of shocks one of the computer section of the location that they're at, um, a giant fire erupts from some fuel, uh, it seems that everybody's dead except for Michael, and Prankster says, knock him out and bring him to the boat. We then see Nightwing uh, come to this location, 
come across the police officer who, in fact, was hunting down prankster, and he finds out that uh, they were taken to a boat. Uh, meanwhile, in Gotham City at the Municipal Bank, uh, a number of reporters are questioning Sonia Branch about why she changed her name, whether or not she's in cahoots with her father or not. Uh, now in Wisconsin, we see Tony Zuko, or Billy, as he's known from by his wife, uh, who also happens to be a redhead, um, being told why he never told her the truth about who he was. Uh, after he explains there's a lot more going on than you know about, uh, she packs her bags and decides to leave after leaving him with this thought about telling their son the last issue to take responsibility for their own actions and that he eventually will figure out that his dad is a liar. Meanwhile, back in Chicago, the Michael wakes up on a yacht in Lake Michigan and it appears that uh, some henchmen are about to set the boat on fire. Uh, at City Hall... Some aldermen are approaching the mayor, telling him that they need he needs to come clean and get this money back to where it needs to go, specifically because the city is being ruined because of this situation. Back at the boat, the boat is now on fire. Nightwing pulls up in some speedboat, takes out the henchmen very quickly, and then goes to save everyone else. At City Hall, uh, the aldermen actually get shot, along with somebody else who also gets shot right in front of the mayor. Uh, after they get back on uh, back at the boat, Nightwing gets Michael and the other ones to the actual uh, get gets them onto the boat. He kind of he brings them to the dock, kind of catches his breath for a brief second, and uh, the mayor, we're shown, says, "My my God," which we would assume he's reacting to the fact that everyone just got shot. Um, as Nightwing's trying to catch his his breath, he's approached by somebody, and. Uh, the mayor opens the door at City Hall, and it's revealed that Prankster is there waiting for him. And uh, back at the dock, it appears that Tony Zuko is approaching Nightwing, telling him that they need to work together because there's something more going on than what is actually being shown. Next issue, the final showdown. So the first thing I want to talk about is, I know it's been a little bit of time since we read the last issue, but uh, when I first started reading this issue, the... The, the scene taking that was taking place kind of threw me off guard as far as I started questioning whether or not I was I missed something um, if something else happened or I missed an issue which I knew I didn't but I was really cons- I was really confused because of what was happening in that first scene with Nightwing randomly taking out the prankster's henchmen um, that really wasn't shown in the last at the end of the last issue obviously there's some exposition that takes place later on in the actual issue a couple pages in as to explain, you know, the time jump from the last issue to this issue. But how did you guys feel about that uh, opening scene and then the exposition a couple pages later? It didn't really bother me. Um, I guess it... I I think just because I'm so used to things jumping into an action scene, if it didn't have the explanation a bit later, I probably would have been wondering. But uh, the fact that it did have that, it uh, definitely made sense. And I kind of liked that. You know, he it explains that he's been going around and sort of build up his own reputation as a as a good thing in Chicago. I too had been thrown off, um, and to be honest, I guess I didn't recognize the explanation as much because it was it was very subtle the way they did it, just like the TV newscasts and everything. Um, I feel like this storyline has been really good because it has been more of a linear story and it's been easier to follow than other 
books like Batman or whatever. So to have it jump in in this manner, uh, I I was I was sort of <laughs> thrown for a loop. Okay, so the next thing that I wanted to talk about is we we again get a little bit of a get more character building of the supporting characters in the book uh, by focusing not just on Nightwing. We you know even though it's in in some ways just a cameo, Joey appears. Mm-hmm. Michael's involved in a very specific event that you know has nothing to do with Nightwing until later in the issue. Uh, we see more of uh, Tony Zuko and his wife, and more uh, talk about his son. How do you feel Kyle Higgins is doing with the character developments? Um, as we know, supposedly Nightwing's only real reason from coming to to coming to Chicago was to come after Tony Zuko, and we've talked about this in the past as far as whether or not we would think we think that he's going to go back to Gotham after this, or if he's going to stay in Chicago. And based off of what's been happening specifically the character building that's been happening month in and month out with uh related to some of the stuff we saw in this issue how do you feel now knowing that even though it says the next issue is the final showdown how do you feel the direction of the series is going to go after this final showdown I think because we have invested this amount of time and Higgins is investing time in these characters that I would love to see him stay in Chicago, even though it's a very weird concept to think of Nightwing away from Gotham City, away from Bloodhaven. But even in this issue, even though we don't get a lot of dialogue from Joey and Michael, just having them there and actually interacting, talking about Nightwing, it makes them a presence in Dick Grayson's life. And that's really the way to start building up characters and building up a cast. And I've said before that I really like this because some of the best books have great casts built around them and you start to care about them. And yeah, Joey is kooky, um, but you know she's got, she's got something special about her. And Michael, he's got this other storyline that's sort of going around him with the cop. And I feel like that these little um, storylines are not going to be wrapped up even after this huge storyline is um, ended. So while we may finish up this Billy equals Zuko storyline, I think it would be wonderful, and I'm hoping that Nightwing does in fact stay in Chicago, at least for a longer haul. And this was something that I asked um, Higgins in San Diego Comic-Con, just the fact that from the start of this book, we've had so many status quo changes. You know, we had the circus, and then we had Amusement Mile, and now we've switched over here. And so it would be great to keep him in one place for a longer amount of time rather than pulling out the rug again and moving him back. I think we need to just set up our or put up, pull up our stakes, I think means move. So we need to hammer in our stakes and stay here for a good time. I agree, and I think that you mentioned time's being invested in these characters, and I think that they're being built up slowly. They're not being shoved in our faces, which I really appreciate. So you kind of grow to you grow affectionate towards the side characters and starting to see them uh, caring for Dick Grayson. You know, just like her on the phone to Michael saying, "You know, this has been on the news about his parents' death. So where is he? Is he all right?" and I like the fact that they're not being really well. Like I said, shoved in our faces. The fact that um, they kind of they have their own stories and they're not 
the main focus, but we're kind of learning a bit about them each issue. And I appreciate the pacing of that. So I definitely think that there's enough to keep him in Chicago and enough that would interest us. Yeah, I think that there there's plenty going on at least month in and month out that will lead them to be able to do stuff in Chicago after this. One of the things that... Um, the, the the kind of kind of the interesting thing is so obviously next month is going to be a month off for Nightwing because there's not going to be a book because Villains Month uh, 24 will be the issue that takes place where the the series will actually have uh, the fi- the final of this story arc and then 25 is going to take place and be the year one tie-in or zero year I should say zero year tie-in. So the, the the direction of the book is going to... The new direction or the next story arc that will happen in Nightwing isn't going to actually take place until December, which seems like a really far month, uh, far ways off considering here we are in August and we're talking, you know, the next... The, the final part of this, the, this, this story arc is going to happen next issue and that's really, you know, it's a while's away. So I'm, I'm really thinking that... One of the things that they've hinted at multiple times, but they have kind of that Higgins has kind of gotten away from the last couple issues, is the the person in Chicago who's been killing masks. That's something that they really haven't focused on in the last issue or this issue, and that's something that I think they could. And I think based off of what Higgins has done in the past with like you know planting these small little seeds to you know carry on to build into his next story arc. I think that's one of the things that we're probably going to expect to see come December. So I think that there's plenty of stuff that they could do, but I think that's really what's going to happen just because they have planted these small little parts for us to really start to think about it months and months in advance. I think also Nightwing is going to become more accepted in Chicago because it said in the beginning that more people are starting to appreciate him and you know she called on him as a hero and then it's michael's job you know on behalf of the police to kind of frame him in a way and make him look a lot worse than he is and now that he's been saved by nightwing he's probably going to be a lot more reluctant to do that so we're going to see the appreciation for him grow i think yeah my only concern with that is i had a very and i apologize take a shot right now a very spider-man feel uh, at the beginning, just with how he was talking, and then all of a sudden this redhead threw, you know, flew out of the building, and, and he caught her and everything. Um, so I don't want it to be like that. Like, public acceptance and building up to it is great. I think there's also, I, I just hope there's not like this hatred, like this hated side of the city as well. And I really do want to see what his life is like outside of the suit because I've said many times I really loved this the series uh, in Nightwing when he had a job as a cop. So I'm just wondering what is he going to do outside of the suit if we do stay in Chicago? The, the last thing I want to talk about though is I want to talk a little bit about the art. Uh, I, there's a couple things that I, I've noticed um, one, as I mentioned during my recap of the actual issue, there's a ton of redheads in this book. <laughs> and I don't yep. know why, because I, honestly, on a daily basis, I don't see as many redheads as I see in this one issue. Um, so I think it's interesting that there's redheads. Now, that's not to say that every female's a redhead, because mm-hmm. obviously Sonya Branch is shown and she has 
black hair, and we see Joey, who has blonde with the, the crazy color highlights. So, I mean, there's, it's not as if there's that, but then they're also one of uh, the female henchmen that's accompanying Prankster on the things and then is one of the people who sets fire to the yacht also happens to be a redhead. So, I mean, there's a lot of redheads in this book, and I'm just wondering if anybody else uh, noticed that, number one. And number two, um, relating to the first character who was the redhead in the very mm-hmm. opening of the book um if anybody else found it a little weird that it just so happens that she looks almost exactly like barbara gordon <laughs> um i did notice this but i guess i didn't pay too much attention to it i mean i feel like there's always this argument of too many blondes so maybe it's good we're bringing a minority hair color into the fold um, I wonder if all of this is well. Number one, I wonder about this. This damsel in distress sort of reminds me of. I guess it was the Dark Knight, Batman. That um, you know, he rescued that one girl, and there was all this focus on her, and we wondered, well, what's up with this? And then she turned out to be one of the potential Alice's. So I do wonder, like, is there something go- going to happen with this one girl, or is it just random? The fact that she looks like Barbara, I wonder if this is connected to the Nightwing annual that's coming up, uh, because it is going to be a very Barbara uh, Dick um, centric issue. So perhaps Higgins right now is just laying the seeds for this, and maybe he realizes all these redheads that he's had to deal with lately, and then thinks of Barbara, and then something happens. Who knows? To be honest, I didn't really notice it, but flicking through the issue is quite amusing how many redheads there <laughs> yeah. are. And there's like a bad guy, like a male redhead too. So that's Nightwing number 23. I'm going to give it a total of 4 out of 5 batterings. I will give Nightwing a 3.5 out of 5 batterings. I'll agree with Joe and give it a 3.5 out of 5. Alright, so that's going to give Nightwing number 23 a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book. Batgirl number 23. Don't bet on it, gruesome! Batgirl number 23, Batgirl Wanted, part one of three, Manhunt. Writer Gil Simone, penciler Fernando Passaran, inker Jonathan Glapion, and colorist Blonde. The Three Towers, Sherry Hill District. Commissioner Gordon and Detective McKenna make a surprise visit to Sharice Carnes, whom you will recall as Nightfall. Apparently the charges didn't stick, shocker there, uh, that Carnes was Nightfall and she flexes her muscles a little bit, showing that she indeed knows a great deal about Melody and those storylines have not been wrapped up yet. Gordon puts an end to the discussion, asking for Carnes' cooperation by handing over the parking structure surveillance tapes and the security detail assigned to the building during the nights in question which are basically the nights that Batgirl was around. Carnes then shows her dramatic sympathy for Gordon's loss and says she will help in any way telling him to put that killer Batgirl in jail and Gordon says that justice will be done and leaves. After he leaves, Sharice contemplates a recent conversation, but she wants to play it safe since Gordon could actually be after them and actually working with Batgirl. Elsewhere, Babs and Alicia are on a shopping spree when some rough-looking characters that probably in real life would never be around that part of town uh, decide to hit on them, hoping for some action. 
Babs notices that Alicia, is, uh, she seems to have gotten used to such approaches, which bothers her. Uh, and she's still a little frightened, which bo- bothers Babs even more. So Babs grabs a, a dirty plate <laughs> off of um, a, a waiter's, you know, little pile that when they clean tables. She smashes it and she uses the shard as a makeshift shiv, well, weapon, to get the guys to leave. They, of course, freak out saying they just want some action. And uh, this gets a little flashback to the non-death of her brother, James. Later at another part of Cherry Hill, McKenna is trying to get Gordon to go about this just in another way, and she's trying to back back Earl up and, and defend her actions. But he won't have any of it. He asks for a cigarette, but doesn't get one. And he goes to interview his next witness, who happens to be Ricky... Well, what a quinkadink. A local with a record that Batgirl has been in contact with. Meanwhile, at Gotham P568, a gang called the 68 Kings, and this was actually the gang that attacked Babs and Ricky on their date. Uh, they have Ricky's brother and Tyrell. Is that the correct pronunciation? I remember you. I okay, Tyrell. See, I'm glad I asked. You know, Tyrell threatens to kill him. Ricky's mother and Babs if Ricky doesn't come down. So Ricky calls Babs to say goodbye, and she freaks out and screams at him. Gordon is at Ricky's door, so he then has to run out the back to the fire escape. McKenna apparently has some sixth sense, and she's up there. He basically kicks her aside, and she's down for the count. Guess those weights in her room didn't work for anything. Then Gordon is really upset about this, that McKenna's knocked out, and he sends out an APB, and then he sees a photo with Ricky and Babs. Who knows when they had a time to get that picture taken. So Babs, via a GPS tracker, hello, Veronica Mars, in Ricky's car, finds where he and the gang members are. She is dressed in a black getup, but it's not Batgirl, and, you know, she's got a mask on, and she knocks out some of the cops, or else they're they're very trigger-happy, and they feel like killing Ricky. Babs continues through the glass roof of the building, hoping to get it right and take out the gang before anyone else dies, but then we have to flash somewhere else. Nightfall is busy breaking some guy's arms, telling him to go to other cities. When she hears the report that Gordon is heading for one of the gangs that Nightfall gave amnesty to... She doesn't see this as a coincidence and tells Bonebreaker to get the disgraced, a.k.a. Mirror, Grotesque, and Gretel, our favorite villains from this series, together because it's time for Gordon to die. And then finally, back with Babs. Uh, You know, she's doing all she can, but they're firing specialized weapons. Ricky frees his brother. Outside, Gordon tells the police, we're not waiting for the squad. Let's go in right now. Many of the members leave while Ricky picks up a gun and points it at at Tyrell. Tyrell knows Ricky is a wuss and he's not going to pull the trigger, so he points his own gun at Ricky's brother. Gordon then rushes in and he pulls his trigger. Babs pushes Ricky out of the way. (laughs) This is so ridiculous. And then Babs tries to get Ricky to move, but she notices blood on her hands. And she sees that Ricky has been shot. I can only assume that he's dead, but I'm sure we'll pick up issue 24 and he'll be okay. And next up in issue 24, collateral damage. Where to begin? <laughs> um, I guess we'll start just with the overall storyline and then we'll, we'll get to the, the nitty gritty of the characters. 
I felt like there was a lot going on in this story, and all of a sudden we have sort of three storylines coming together. We, you know, we have Batgirl as a murderer and Gordon chasing her down. We've got Ricky and that date sort of all coming back, and just Ricky in general and his past with this gang, and then Nightfall. So... What do you think about all of the – was this too much for you? Do you think all of these really fit? Is this a realistic direction? Like if you were to look back or look forward, could you see all of these threads somehow twining together in this issue? Well, I think it's entirely possible that it could happen, but I think it is way too much of a coincidence. Um, the, the, the thing that doesn't make any sense to me, and I just don't understand it, is – what was the point of the ventriloquist story happening where it did? This seems like this, or well, not the. the it, it seems like if you got rid of the ventriloquist story, they could have moved right into Gordon going after uh, Backroll to begin with. It just seems like that was misplaced. Like, yes, okay, there was a little bit of stuff that they they dealt with, but the fact that she was. She didn't want to be Batgirl. She was questioning whether or not she could be, she'd be Batgirl. She ripped off the bat symbol mm-hmm. off her chest because she didn't want to be Batgirl. But then she went after this villain ventriloquist in the middle of deciding that she didn't want to be Batgirl anymore. It didn't make any sense. Um, now, that's not to say that they, they what they could have done was just gotten rid of the ventriloquist story, put in that issue last month that we, we liked right after that situation because really there wasn't a whole lot of uh, – story development over over this giant story over the past couple months except for the the one scene where gordon punches batman in the first uh, ventriloquist issue so i don't really understand the direction of or the reason behind putting the ventriloquist in there mm-hmm. other than let's just have the ventriloquist so that way we can do the issue about uh focus on the character for villains month which i still also don't get either but whatever um there is a lot of really, really, really big coincidences with everything. Mm-hmm. The way everything just happens to tie together, um, it's a little too knit tight. And uh, I don't know. I mean, like obviously, someone's trying to go in a specific direction. She's trying to get to that specific direction. Um, if Ricky ends up dying. What was the point of spending all this time dealing with Ricky to begin with? Yeah. Like, he's been around for a while now, and they've developed this character to the point where she actually is dating him and things like that now. So, for him just to die, it's basically like, okay, we're going to spin the face of Barbara yet again because she actually tried to have a normal life, and that didn't turn out so well because the guy's dead. Like, there's a lot of really big problems with the direction of, like, some of this stuff. Outside of uh, Ricky, I thought that some of the stuff uh, between uh, Lisa and Barbara, the fact that they went shopping and there's all that interaction, I really like that because that's something that we don't get enough of mm-hmm. with Barbara. But at the same time, the you know, the she's freaking out and saying she has this uncontrollable rage inside of her because these guys were harassing her. Like, realistically, they showed her a couple issues ago going to a psychiatrist or a therapist or whatever to deal with the fact that her brother died. But she was sad, she was bawling, she was doing all of these things that she never does, but in but now it's turned into, I'm going to smash a plate in front of a restaurant and threaten <laughs> to stab somebody. I mean, like, that's a 
pretty big drastic yeah thing. i definitely don't mind the um interlocking story because i mean it's fiction you can do that I, I, it doesn't need to be realistic and i think that the way it kind of tied together was fairly well done and it i mean it kind of it made sense the way that it did tie together it didn't seem i mean it's coincidental i guess but it didn't seem uh unrealistically so uh i'm not sure if we're if this was a separate point but sort of going off and dustin's things um yeah like the 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 potential death of ricky at the end that that kind of annoyed me because the last issue was her happy and i mean first half of this issue for the most part is her happy and then if we're gonna then say oh no she can't be happy she has to be sad all the time so we're gonna kill the only person she loves anymore other than her dad who hates her but not her then like just leaving her alone again to be depressed that's gonna really suck um because the other thing that we started getting in this issue again, which we thankfully didn't get in the last one, was a lot more inner monologues about how depressed she is and how she sees stuff and it reminds her of her brother, which I guess kind of makes sense. But from the last issue, I felt that we were moving on from that. So it's a shame that we're returning to that. And uh, like the stuff with the, the guys, regardless of their appearance and like whether people like that would interact with people like Barbara and Alicia... Um, just like the way that she reacted to it I'm not sure how to feel about it because like fair enough if you want to just like stand up for yourself but I agree go, like smashing a plate and threatening to shiv someone is probably a bit over the top <laughs> uh, yeah I totally agree and you know Joe really hit something there just the fact that um, you know if you're taking away Ricky you're almost taking away like her last shot at happiness. And to go even a step further, it was her own father who shot Ricky. So, you know, Gordon already hates Batgirl for killing his own son, and she's got to deal with this. How is Babs going to deal with the fact that her father (laughs) shot someone that, you know, she had feelings for? I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm also confused about what Gordon was doing and how he could aim in that direction, but that's actually a different point, just this characterization of what's going on over there. There was so much going on, and I almost wonder if uh, Gil Simone set out, well, I've got these three main plot points. How am I going to bring them all together? But it's just like one thing almost bleeds into another. Like all We've got this gang. And I had to think, well, why do they have this man's brother? And I guess it goes back to the date. And then Ricky's about to leave at the same time that Gordon decides, hey, I've got to pick this guy up. And then Ricky's got to beat up a cop, which then puts him in the line of fire because he's about to get shot by any cop on the street. It just it goes all over the place. And, of course... The Nightfall situation, I feel like this is a way to bring Nightfall back into it. And when she left and we saw those panels with uh, Gretel and Grotesque and Mirror in jail, we knew something was building. And I guess, I don't know, 10 issues later, we're going to start to do this after Batgirl murder. So we're, we're finally building up to all of this. But just to think that all of the scenes that are occurring are occurring on Nightfall's territory, and so she's basically paranoid that Gordon's going after her. It just, 
you have to be in a mindset to be able to take all of this like, yes, this makes sense. Because if you throw any bit of, no, no, this is too coincidental, um, I think you're going to dislike the entire issue. I Let's see, characterizations. Uh, Gordon, we talked about this before, but what do you think about him now, this guy that won't say no? He's going to go after her no matter what. He's a little trigger happy and... I mean, now he he thinks Ricky is sort of public enemy number one. McKenna, compared to what we have seen of her before, we've seen her sort of dot the pages, but before we really saw her with Nightfall, so I guess that's why she's bigger into the fold. So do you think she's gotten to be a better character? And the Gotham City Police Department, whom I thought were not portrayed in the best light, though we don't really have a book to, to work with them, but just the fact that, one of the cops says he hurt McKenna, and so that is reason to shoot someone, even though they don't have a gun pointed at you. I was a little turned off by that. So Gordon McKenna and Gotham City PD, what do you think about how they were in this book? Well, obviously, Gordon has been a character who has gone off the deep end, um, and it's only in this book for whatever reason, but I think that McKenna was I don't I don't really think McKenna's that much different. I mean the the big thing is I I, I wanna kinda hint at something you said right before you asked this question about Nightfall and all these other characters coming back. And the the fact that they just come back so nonchalantly kind of is a is 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 well, I mean, besides the fact that I already don't like I already don't like these characters, but the fact that these guys come back so nonchalantly and the that scene that we saw where at the very last issue that they were all in, where someone was getting them all, all of these villains, the Batgirl has faced all together, and now the only one that actually is here is is the ones that were originally with Nightfall to begin with. I think it's interesting that we're ignoring that, and now we've brought these other characters back just to be these background villains that are clearly going to lead to something and that's going to involve the characters in the next couple, or involve Batgirl in probably future issues, but I think that in general, I just don't understand why they randomly brought them back. They didn't really serve a purpose to the story other than just to say some random stupid things and to point Gordon in a specific direction, but the fact that Gordon's going to use their information, it it just is showing that Gordon has this problem, you know, Gordon is so far gone that he's willing to go to people who, yes, they weren't convicted, because there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute them, but he's going to turn to them in order to actually be able to catch Batgirl. It's it's just he's he's basically al- aligning himself with villains. That's just that's where it's at, and I I don't like it at all. Um, outside of that, the fact that the police automatically want to shoot somebody just because somebody got hurt, I I know that that's not uncommon. There are a lot of movies and tv shows that where you know if a cop gets hurt everybody goes on this like uh revenge rampage where you know they whoever it is whether they're guilty or not they're if they think it's a specific person they're going to go after them but the fact that everyone including gordon is oh well he's got a gun let's just shoot him and it's like he didn't shoot the gun at them he didn't raise the gun towards them everybody knows that the only way you could actually shoot somebody is if they threaten your life or threaten the life of somebody else so the fact that he's just moving 
and they shoot, and Gordon shoots him. It's just like, uh, well, he was pointing the gun I, I at the other guy. He was pointing at the guy, but the, the their mind frame, they're looking at it from the perspective of, okay, well, that's one bad guy, and there's another bad guy. One of them, you know, one of them's going to take out the other bad guy. I really don't think that the cops care that much about that, especially since they have no problem just randomly shooting Ricky as he's running into the building. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I felt that McKenna, um, of them being maybe a bit unprofessional, uh, confronting Nightfall was uh, written pretty well. I did. I liked that someone, and it was her, finally addressed the fact that said, you know, maybe it was a good thing that James was killed. But um, I guess Gordon wasn't having any of that. Um, I kind of felt that in that last scene, it was, like you were saying, it's him kind of really in desperation, probably just wanting to do something. So that's why he maybe overreacted and shot Ricky. I mean, there was a lot going on. I mean, she was, uh, Barbara was jumping and pushing him out of the way. I mean, it'll be interesting to see, like, where that goes, because she's probably going to have to now escape from that warehouse. And uh, if anyone's going to realise that her and Batgirl are the same person, or just because she hasn't got a giant bat on her chest. (laughs) Um, I mean, now that she's not Barbara or Batgirl anymore, uh, it's not such a thing, but... Another thing, I mean, he confronted Batman about it, but another thing he could have done was gone to Bruce Wayne and said, right, I want you to cut her off, because if you're funding all these Bat people, then stop giving her all her goods. But um, I guess that doesn't really matter now that she's not Batgirl anymore. But um, other than that, I mean, the GCPD, I don't think they've ever really been portrayed as overly competent, other than maybe in a series, GCPD, but yeah... Okay. My my final one, which actually just really tags on to what Joe was just talking about, is what do you think about Babs swearing off that she was going to be Batgirl and everything? And she says, even though I swore off being Batgirl, I still did this GPS thing, but I accept it. But, I mean, she's in black gear, like this entire black getup. Do you think this is being hypocritical, or what are your thoughts on her still continuing this fight, even though I felt like what she really meant was I'm not going to be in this hero business anymore. It's it's entirely hypocritical. It, it It's basically, I don't want to be associated as Batgirl because Batgirl is associated with killing this, you know, killing her brother, and that's what it came across as. She felt really bad that she had to kill her brother and that she wore the bat symbol on her chest. That's why we had the the scene in the next issue where she's basically ripping the bat off her chest, telling herself that she doesn't deserve to wear the symbol of the bat because she dishonored it, and not exactly in those words, but that's essentially what we we are led to believe, is that she feels like she just dishonored the idea of the bat because she killed somebody. And the the thing that's really interesting about this is the fact that she instead, so so she's no longer going to be Batgirl, but we saw her beating the heck out of those thugs. Uh, I can't remember if it was, I think it was the last issue where she's on the date with Ricky. Mm-hmm. She has no problem beating up the thugs in the middle of the thing. She has no problem in this issue threatening these random uh, thugs uh, who are harassing her and Elisa. 
Um, while they're shopping, she has no problem cracking a plate and harass, you know, uh, threatening them to beat them up. I mean, like, realistically, why is she doing what she's doing if she doesn't want to be Batgirl? Because I got the impression that the whole thing was she felt she dishonored the bat. She decided she's just going to be over and done with it, and that's it because she did something she shouldn't have done. And she feels really guilty about that. By constantly doing all of these other things, it's making it seem like, well, I'm only going to use my, my, my skills when it's completely necessary. But in the situations that she's using them, is it entirely necessary? That's debatable. Um, when it comes to her getting in this this black getup, it's it's entirely stupid. It doesn't make any sense because so her father is going after Ricky, but she doesn't even know that Ricky just calls her and basically tells her that they're over and done with because he thinks his life is over. She feels compelled to go save him. But what's to say that she's not going to kill somebody else? Because that's the way she's basically been making it seem is that she's super afraid of doing something really bad like she did to her brother. Um, and then in, in at the same point, we also know that she says she put this GPS device on him. She gets wrapped up into the middle of this thing with the cops. And then there's this huge problem. And the problem that I have is... So Gordon sees the picture of Ricky and ba- and Barbara together. And he's like, "Oh no, she's mixed in t- she's mixed up in this too." And then we have this girl who happens to be wearing some I don't know what kind of ski mask it is, <laughs> but it's some weird ski mask. A balaclava. Mask. Yeah, and her red hair is hanging out of the actual thing. So she goes from being Batgirl with her hair on prominent display to being someone who's just in this, I guess, Batman Begins get-up, uh, <laughs> you know, of basically the, the, the suit that Bruce goes to see Gordon in in Batman Begins. She decides to do that, but her red hair is still on display. She's involved with this character who happened to be involved with Batgirl and that's the whole reason Gordon's investigating him is because of his ties to Batgirl. Gordon is an idiot and should be fired from the the force because if he can't put this together, basically he he has to be fully aware that Batgirl's not on the scene anymore because nobody's seen her in a while and that's why he's trying to figure out where she's at. So instead, she he comes across this chick who's in some weird get-up fighting off cops and doing all of this stuff that Batgirl would have been doing too and has the same hair color. I mean, like, I know that there's more than one redhead in the world, but the fact that it's so closely in front of your face all the time, you would you would think about it a little bit. You would probably try to think about it and say, huh, or at least be trying to piece it together. You know, Gordon is not an idiot. You know, I'm not going to say he's the smartest guy in the book, but he's not an idiot. He should be able to put this together. So the fact that then at the end of the issue when after Ricky gets shot she stands over him and prominently displays that she knows this person and is upset by the fact that he was just shot again is a, a huge clue that's like wait what's going on here why is this person so concerned with this random person yeah that is a pretty major flaw so it'll be interesting to see how uh gets around that uh well I, the thing that I do disagree about with you Dustin is you're saying that uh, 
she felt that she dishonored the bat symbol. That's why she doesn't do it, and she gave up crime fighting. And I think that it's just more of a surface thing than that. So I think that she feels that she dishonored the bat symbol, so she doesn't deserve to be part of that franchise, for lack of a better word. So she can still go out and fight crime. But I also think that, like you said, she's kind of doing it as things happen, it's generally when it's situations evolve around her, she gets involved and kicks ass or threatens people. So I guess she's doing a lot less. She's not actively going out and helping people. It's kind of when crime comes to her, she, she'll she be there just by coincidence. But So I guess you're kind of right, actually. But I don't think that she ever her intent was ever to give up crime fighting as a whole, just more so to uh, not wear the bat symbol as a sign of respect to Batman. So, yeah, look, I've done this wrong thing, so I shouldn't be a part of your cool club anymore. Yeah, and I, and I, and I understand that. I think that's, that's the thing that they're trying to get across in this issue, is that she didn't necessarily give up crime fighting as much as she gave up being part of Batman, you know, of the Bat Club. I think that's honestly what they're trying to get across with the fact that she's going out there not dressed as Batgirl and still trying to assist, even though if it's the, the most mistaken way of assisting anybody in the in the world. But uh, but now, here's Donovan. So let's hear Donovan's take on uh, Batgirl. Um, this book, I didn't like as much as the last issue, although I don't think I hated this issue. I just I actually just read it today, and I, I was... I don't know there's there's some Simone stylistics to the issue which I didn't care for, but I can't think can't think of anything off the top of my head that directly made me dislike it. Um, in terms of like why back like Barbara's you know gallivanting around in a jumpsuit and not being Batgirl, I don't know. I mean, again, like we talked about it before, how Barbara Gordon has always wanted to fight crime, even going to the Zero issue, she's always wanted to help. So it's definitely in character. I I'm not exactly sure what. This, uh, I mean, I'm not sure. This, this isn't really her persona she's taking on, but like, I'm not exactly sure what her being in a jumpsuit fighting crime is. How how that's different in terms of her uh, operation than being Batgirl? Because I know Batgirl represents more, but I'm not sure we've seen anything that like you know she would do differently besides I don't know wear a bat symbol. I mean, I don't I don't think she would kill if she had the option just because she's not Batgirl. Um, the story in itself. I didn't really, I didn't really care for how I was going. I didn't like the scene where Barbara just flipped out and said, "You want to get nuts? Let's get nuts with a the plate." Um, but I mean, those are those are kind of small things, I guess, in the long term. I just, just sort of, you know, you take it or leave it. I do like the artist, but Simone's writing with the rain and like you know the whole Rolo thing. It wasn't something I cared to read, but I can't say it was exactly bad. So I'm kind of mixed. I, it's, it's something I don't really personally like seeing but uh as a story i suppose it was all right so it was, it was sort of middle of the road for me all right so back row number 23 i'm going to give a total of two and a half out of five batarangs uh ditto two and a half out of five batarangs i'll give this a three i continue to not hate this as much as the rest of you but it definitely <laughs> of course it's good as the last issue i don't think a two and a half is, a, is hating, i guess not but... it's definitely better than the ones and everything but uh I, I think the issues I had it were fairly small, but if they continue to uh, grow into what I fear that you know Barbara's going to be all on her own again, everyone's going to hate her. And if I mean it never will happen, but if Gordon doesn't realise that his own daughter is a crime fighter, but I don't think that'll ever happen anyway. But if those things manifest itself, then then it will be a 
consistent zero. But. And I will agree with the first two fellows and say 2.5 out of 5. I do want to say that I honestly think that this all is going to get wrapped up by it being revealed that James Jr. is still alive and that Gordon actually does find out that Barbara is Batgirl. I think that's the only way that they actually can figure out, can kind of wrap this up to make sense and redeem some of the things that have occurred in this book. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. There's, I don't know if you guys probably already talked about this, but there was one scene where uh, McKenna said, isn't it slightly possible that she... They killed him in self-defense, and he's like, I was there, I saw everything. Yeah. Yep. Screw that. I, I thought you were going to say, um, you think that it's going to be revealed that James Gordon's alive, and then he's going to go, oh, he's not dead? Oh, okay, then uh, we don't have to hunt for it anymore, and just drop it instantly, which would have also been ridiculous. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be bad. That'd be really bad. All right, so Batgirl number 23 gets a total of 2.5 out of 5 Batarangs. Let's move into our next book, Batman number 23. 18 years. Since all sense left my life. Batman number 23, written by Scott Snyder with art by Greg Capullo. We kick off the issue with a flashback of Thomas Wayne yelling down the entrance to the cave, but his interactions with Bruce fade into the next section or next scene as we realise Bruce is actually hearing the voice of the Red Hood after the explosion set up in the last issue. The Red Hood gang proceed to beat Bruce to within an inch of his life before the Red Hood shoots Bruce twice in the stomach through a portrait of his parents. Throughout this torture, the Red Hood explains to Bruce that, he, that the senseless way his parents died inspired him to start the Red Hood gang, where people would live in fear of being the victim of another senseless set of murders. As well as this, the scene jumps in time as we see Bruce making his way, to the, uh, making his way back to Wayne Manor, narrate, narrated by his father on the day he fell into the cave. The sequence ends as Bruce collapses into his father's study as, the, as his father says... We made it, just rest. We then cut to Wayne Tower, where Philip is threatening Edward Nigma after we learn it was he who set, sent the Red Hood gang after Bruce. Nigma explains to Philip why he can't kill him, mostly because of all the evidence left behind. But Philip explains that there is a password-activated magnet under the room that would wipe all of the hard drives clean and deleting all evidence of Nigma's involvement in the company. Nigma then activates the magnet and Philip becomes pinned to the floor by a metal plate in his head. Nigma then collects a few of his belongings and leaves. We then cut back to Wayne Manor where Alfred is patching up Bruce as well as their relationship. And now stitched up, Bruce returns to his father's study where the 3D mapping, with the 3D mapping ball that he finds in a box of memories. Talking to his father's bust, he asks for guidance and if there is any way back to how things were to show him. With these words, the ball lights up and projects the mapped cave in the room. There is more of his father's narration, asking what he sees, what the city is telling him to be, as holograms of bats fly through his chest, and he utters the words, Yes, father, I shall become a bat. In the backup, written by Scott Snyder and James Sinead IV, with art by Raphael Albuquerque, 
Bruce is fighting in a death match that has lasted 28 consecutive hours, but he refuses to kill, as he defeats wave after wave of fighters. His tutor explains that he must kill or be killed, or the enemy will never stop. But after defeating another wave, there is no more one. There is no one left for him to fight, as they're all too frightened by his unrelented beatings. After everything that's been said about this not being a retread of year one, and not <laughs> not <laughs> affecting that story at all, how do you feel about this issue? Do you feel lied to? Do you feel cheated? How do you feel? I don't understand why they had to have that at all. Um, you know, it's 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 one thing for them to have this, the you know the the orb show the the bat cave in one way or the other. That's one way to go about it. But then when he actually utters the line, "Yes, Father, I shall become a bat," I was thinking to myself, "Wait, why is that happening here? I thought that was supposed to happen in year one, which supposedly, according to Snyder himself, still exists." And still happened, but yet he does it a year before year one. When he's when when this whole thing's happening with I'm sorry, can can, can uh, I can I interject? I think wasn't there a recent interview where he said that like they just wanted another origin of Batman, and he tried as much as he could to keep year one intact, but he realized he couldn't. Didn't didn't, didn't he come out and say that recently? I if he did, I haven't seen anything. But I mean, that's not not to say. But I mean. Originally, when this all when this all started, it was year one still happening. Year one still happened. We're not retreading over year one. We're not doing. We're not messing with year one. And then one of the most iconic scenes from year one is now taking place in the third issue of the story arc. I mean, and that might be true. Maybe he has gone back and said that it's changing. But I I know for a fact that. Three months ago, when he was doing all the promotion promoting for the uh, for Zero Year, he was saying that it wasn't going to walk on top of Zero Year, which is impossible for him to had not think about because we know that they're writing these books months ahead of time because the artists are doing these these books two months before they're actually coming out. So there's no reason that this should have you know he should he would have known about this, and that's what kind of upset me was the fact that. This happened. They're changing it to, be, to, you know, to work with whatever they're doing, and I, I just, I don't know. That's fine. Um, see, I don't because because I came in with that mind. I wasn't really like you know, you was gone. No, because everything's gone. Everything we love is gone forever. I think that this was interesting. I think that this was was worked well, but like at the same time, I'm conflicted because it feels a bit too grandiose. For one thing, the shades of Batman Begins here are are very very like in the way of me enjoying the story, and I think the whole scene with Bruce running through the uh, the, the burning uh, Wayne Manor was illustrated well. But at the same time, all I could think about was Batman Begins. It's almost like you can't. It's like it's put it's put in there so you specifically can't not think about that. And I thought I thought that as a I don't think Batman's origin story should be something that we're, you know, that it, it should stand on its own, no matter how you tell it. I think that the bit with, um, I don't know, like, like it feels like the, the recurring theme in Batman's in Batman's realization that he become, needs to become Batman is him at a moment of despair talking to his dad, at least in the comics, at least. I thought that the the 3D holographic thing showing him in the Batcave and him having an epiphany, that was a cool idea, but... It feels a bit too much, I think. Like, now, if you're going to go to Wikipedia and say, how did Batman become Batman? In the new 52, it'll say, oh, oh well, he, 
Oh well, he dropped his signs, and he, you know he found he found uh, bats flying everywhere, and then he decided to become Batman because he dropped this impossibly you know realistic futuristic kind of thing. And I, I, that part I don't really like. I, I don't like the fact that it was it was over over glamorized. It, it felt a little bit. It, it wasn't simple enough. I think that the year one story when it came out might have been a bit like you know much for people who were just familiar with Detective Comics number thirty or whatever it was his origin was. But I mean, this to me feels like it's just. You know, in the future kind of thing, and I see where Snyder's going with this. I, I can definitely see the effort. It just wasn't to my liking. Do I feel betrayed and lied to? Uh, slightly. Um, the fact that he waited three issues—is that correct, or is it four? Yep. Um, and it—it's a completely different story, I guess. In a way, he didn't lie to us. But when I saw the bed fly through the window, I was like, hey, this looks familiar. I do have to, I mean, I'm still going to admit that it's a great scene. And I feel like what Batman tale is not going to involve that particular scene. And if one scene makes Batman year one, then I don't know if there's any way that people are not going to be able to reduplicate that that Batman year one, but everything leading up to it, everything after that was a completely different story. So I don't feel too betrayed or lied to. And I thought that uh, the scene where um, the, the fireplace, well, just that entire room sort of turns into the bat cave. However that happens, I'm still trying to figure that out. I thought that was pretty cool. I, I do want to say, I didn't necessarily hate the scene. I know I, I voiced a lot of distaste for the scene, because it kind of treads over stuff that happened in year one. I really did like the idea of the orb creating the cave and the holographic bats and stuff like that. I thought that was kind of cool. And it's like a more modern take on what originally happened in year one. It's just knowing that it was originally said that we're, you know, we're not messing with what happened in year one and then this specifically happening... Don't get me wrong. This was an this was a great way to update it and make it more a more modern origin for, or at least that that scene a more modern scene related to what happened in year one. It's not bad. It's just it kind of is it's just a little frustrating for the fact that it clearly is retreading on something that they said they weren't going to do. I mean, they could have just named it Batman Year One. If that's if they were going to do that and said, yeah, this is Batman Year One, but it's part of the New Fifty Two because they, we all know that that's what they're doing with a lot of things anyway. They just decided to to name it something different, and you know it's three issues in, and they're they're just deciding now. Okay, he's going to use this element to you know base himself around the bat, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. I think it's a cool take cool modern take it's just because it's even so specific with the dialogue that's what's upsetting um i think that like when i when this first first started i don't know i i never really bought the idea that they were not going to go over year one because like they said they i mean they said at the very beginning when that's all this started like the new 52 started oh things and thing batman's history still happened and month after month they kept on contradicting that it's like, oh, Bane broke his back, but you know, like, like Nightfall, Nightfall couldn't have possibly happened in the way certain aspects have happened. No Man's Land couldn't have happened. Like, so many things could not have happened. So we, when we start this thing out, and we say, um, and we see Bruce fighting the Red Hood gang, and uh, Uncle Philip and all this, all those elements that were nowhere near Year One. To me, it, it was it was sort of like an assumed thing. Like, like I don't really buy that Year One is still in this. So. 
when I came across this, I was like, okay, fine. How does this work as a Batman origin story? Well, it's bite off of a lot of things I've seen before. That kind of detriments it. The art is cool and it illustrates it well, but ultimately, it just feels like it. It doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't stand on its own. Unfortunately, it just feels like it's another take on the origin. And tickets on the origin are fine, but like they have to stand on their own as intrinsically interesting. And it's part of a a long, you know, multi part story. Then it feels kind of tossed in there. I feel a bit of a mix of all of you. Um, it definitely was. I mean, looking at it as a retread of year one, it's a bit distressing, <laughs> and. The fact that we promised it wasn't. I mean, it's kind of like, oh, hold on to your hats, kids. This isn't your dad's Batman, but I want my dad's Batman. And <laughs> this is that kind of glossy, kind of new for the sake of newness, which I don't really like. It's definitely an interesting and, I guess, original take on something that's been done hundreds of times, and there's still a lot of that in there. Um, it's just like... If you want to tell a story in Batman's past, go ahead. That would be interesting, and we're getting that, but it's kind of then getting this other stuff, the origin stuff in there. It's, I'm not as keen on that. Um, I mean, like, especially, like, retreading to the point of including that one line, possibly, like, Batman's most famous line. And then biggest well, difference... Well, that goes back to the, point, uh, the first origin story, though. He said that back then. I shall become a bat. Well, that doesn't change it from being Batman's most famous line. But, okay. Uh, I, I get your point. Um, but I think the biggest difference from this to year one is, I mean, Dustin mentioned that it's, uh, Bat- I think it was Dustin, in that it's always in his darkest times talking to the bust of his father. But the difference from this to year one is in year one, he was bleeding out who's going to die and it was it took that and that motivation to in a way save himself and call for Alfred whereas in this he'd already been saved so what did he have to lose he's kind of just sitting there like oh what can I do now oh yeah I've got an idea I'll become Batman now <laughs> so he didn't have that kind of gravitas to it which I, I again it kind of makes this whole thing seem superfluous to me the other thing that like I, I think like I said, the orb was kind of cool. I don't get why when it rolled off the table, it broke when it had already fallen down fathoms deep mine shaft into like the cave. So yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that softened it. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about is the, oh, we talked a lot about the art, but how do you feel about the coloring in this issue? Because it was really vibrant in this. Yeah, it was it was definitely more vibrant than stuff in the past. Uh, specifically, anything we've seen from Capullo. Obviously, Capullo is not doing the coloring, but uh, this was the first time that there, there was a couple bright scenes in the last couple issues, but not as vibrant as this. Especially with some of the stuff as as kind of like I don't know how I'd say gloomy, but kind of like down and very serious situations that were occurring in this book. They were still very vibrant, so I, I noticed that too. I don't know what the deal is. I, I, I would have thought that they would have wanted it to be a little bit more uh, dark and dreary because of the seriousness of certain things, but then it goes back into the fact that you know the actual the, the big scene in the issue really didn't have the gravitas that you were just talking about in, uh, you know a moment ago just because 
he wasn't dying. He didn't need to call Alfred. He was just literally, he was already fixed up, and it was just like, hey, yeah, I'm going to become Batman. And it's it, it kind of like takes away from that, you know, that serious element of the situation. The colorist is credited as FCO Placienta, Placienza, Placencia, Placencia. Okay. Um, so that's, that's, that's a company. Um, uh, the colors didn't really strike out to me. I guess they were really good though, because like the fire scene is like really, really bright. The science scene at the end is like kind of ethereal, like, like kind of this smoky, foggy kind of tint to it, like a soft focus. So, uh, credit where credit's due. Um, uh, the colors, yeah, the colors tend to be kind of like a bit, I'm not gonna say dull, but maybe muted typically throughout this, uh, Capullo run of Batman. But here, yeah, like, like there was a lot of opportunities for it to kind of pop, and I think in the most most integral scenes, especially the scene at the beginning, it did. Yeah, and I'm not sure if that's supposed to be some kind of metaphor for him turning into the dark and gritty Batman, or Jesus. but I don't know because I mean he's getting beaten up here into a bloody pulp, and it's all technicolor and wonderful. I mean, I really like the colors. It kind of reminds me of uh, sort of old, like sort of Killing Joke colors and. Just that kind of vibrancy, kind of with the weird, kind of dark story. But I mean, obviously, you're talking about like the original Killing Joke because they they recolored that like a few years ago. Yeah, I know. Yeah, not the muted and not not the crap one, (laughs) dark one now. But the yeah, the really vibrantly colored original printing. Um, I mean, in particular, the the uh, Edward Nygma scene, like with bright pink backgrounds and stuff like that, is really (laughs) it's kind of strange. But I, I like the brightness of it. I'm just. I'm not sure if there is some kind of metaphor that I'm missing. Um, as for the art, I mean, it's good as usual, but those stitches—they were too much. They were really freaking me out. Like the detail I, he put into those stitches. Can I make a comment on Capullo's penciling a bit? Because uh, I think that he tends to draw faces a bit. He he kind of relies on the same expression of the face. I've, I've commented before that his Bruce Wayne. Most mainly before zero, uh, zero year, he looked really like he was always like smiling and had this like stupid look on his face, and you kind of see that like in the Thomas Wayne in Martha Wayne picture, because Thomas Wayne looks just like Bruce Wayne in a way which I I don't know if I care for. He looks like he looks like, like Bruce Wayne, uh, and then like later on we see Edward Nimoy. He still has that kind of like you know smirky looking, like like sneery face, and I think that's a move that like, Capullo does a lot, and I I'm kind of getting tired of it because. It's like everybody has the exact same expression on their face. And uh, I don't know. Everybody can't just be like, you know, uppity all the time. That's just a personal thing. That's all I have unless anyone has anything to talk about the backup. I'll mention the backup just quickly. Um, I think they're starting to not be as good. I mean, it's it's cool to see that, you know, basically Bruce pitted himself against all these people. And, you know, he made – he – basically created this persona that he's the baddest man there is and nobody wants to fight him but like do we really need to see that i don't think so it just seemed like a waste of space. 28 hours was a bit overkill <laughs> it did feel a bit unrealistic in the way that she you know it's that classic if you don't kill them it's only going to escalate and they'll keep coming and then it's oh see look i've beaten them up enough so they're not going to come anymore and that's just kind of as evidence in 75 years of Batman that that doesn't work but uh, other than that I, I thought it was interesting I, I get your point it also didn't seem or at least I didn't catch the relation between this and the um, the main story I like it at least though that 
you know, this is the first experience that people have had of this this guy that that keeps taking hits and doesn't fall down and it really speaks to his perseverance and really stepping up against the odds and he didn't even intend this it's not like he went into this match with 50 different people was ready to beat them up like he originally intended just to be trained and then this woman for whatever reason just has this vindictive side and wants to see this white guy get beaten to a pulp and so now there's just this fear factor with him and everyone sort of saying how he's just like beyond normal human being. And this is the first time we've seen that because all the other little backups that we've had have been different skill sets. But this is fighting set as well as just creating this mythos of this inhuman person. And I really love the fact that even though he does have this larger than life um, figure and, and just like uh, fighting ability he collapses at the end because no one can continually take that at the end and even though he beat the odds and he beat that woman and all those waves of people he was still he's still at the very base of it a human so actually this was one of my favorite ones compared to the other two uh, perhaps it was just it's in its simplicity I just thought that it, it had a lot of stuff really beneath the surface I agree. I, I like the artwork, and I thought that like uh, the overall message that he won't give up was really good. I think that, like I said, the detail of twenty-eight hours is a bit like okay, but I would, I would, I would agree that overall I, I might like, I might have liked it better than the main story, which is the third time in a row. All right, so Batman number twenty-three. I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. Yet again, I agree. Three out of five batterings. Once more, I'll add a point five on top of that. It's three and a half out of five batterings. And I'm going to stay by my man, Joe, and say 3.5 as well. All right, so Batman number 23 gets a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our last book, Detective Comics number 23. I assume that as you're taking on the underworld, this symbol is a persona to protect those you care about from reprisals. You thinking about Rachel? Actually, sir, I was thinking of myself. Detective Comics number 23, The Dark Knight Dethroned by the Wrath. Writer John Lehman, illustrated by Jason Fabick. Uh, we, be- we begin with a flashback to three years ago when Batman is beating senseless this this clearly you know like under you know trained crook. Uh, and then we cut back to three hours, uh, no no three nights ago, where uh, this guy is dead. Gordon and Batman are looking over his body, and uh, Batman says, "I knew him. His name was Clyde Anderson. We've met before." Um, and it's funny because the flashback ended when Batman beat up. He said, "Don't." Don't let me see you again, or I won't be so friendly. Well, he never saw him again. Um, Batman somehow knows that this guy was uh, taken out of jail and employed by one Caldwell, or uh, E.D. Caldwell. And then we uh, cut back to the presence, kind of, and see Batman be electrocuted by the Wrath. Five seconds before that, I'm starting to get whiplash, uh, we see the Wrath target some other cops. He's been a cop killer in the last issue, but this time Batman stops him from sniping them down. A fight ensues. We see some uh, Batman's suit's uh, abilities sort of show off, like his uh, gauntlets are bulletproof, and his suit is insulated to resist electric shock, although he is a bit stunned. The Wrath says, you know, I, I, I let you live this time, but don't cross me again, as most villains do. So, uh, Bruce is talking to Alfred about how he needs to basically stop the wrath from killing more cops. And um, he already suspects that Caldwell is, because of uh, Anderson, Caldwell is behind the wrath if he's not the wrath outright. So he schedules a meeting with him. And Caldwell uh, 
says, let's talk about this in my martial arts area on the roof. So they changed it to some martial arts gi. And, and um, this, is, this is very Bronze Age. So basically, Caldwell says, you got to you know, sign up with me, man. I mean, you provide Batman with the weapons. Vaguely referencing ba- uh, Batman Incorporated. And Batman says, Wayne, Wayne Enterprises don't make weapons. As for secret weapons, what would I know about Batman's secret weapons? It's not like I am him, of course, because that would be downright batty. <laughs> so while this is going on, Alfred's doing some reconnaissance, uh, sneaking his way into um, the R&D department of Caldwell's, uh, Caldwell Technologies. Uh, back at this board meeting on the roof, Bruce, the, obviously Bruce bets Cal, bests Caldwell in a fight and actually throws him off the roof for I don't know why. Uh, of course, he doesn't let him fall. He, he pulls him up. Um, but he doesn't do much to help his secret identity. So, Caldwell says, I think you knocked that one of my contacts, Bruce. But he actually uses uh, that high-tech contact to uh, see Alfred sneaking around. So, when Alfred gets a call from, uh, or when Bruce gets a call from Alfred saying that he's found a bunch of, like, uh, armaments for war, essentially, you see a bunch of tanks and helicarriers and missiles and all that kind of stuff. Alfred gets thwacked by the wrath. Um, the Wrath assumes that he's either talking to Batman or Bruce or somebody who, who's you know, spying on him. And while the the secretary is about to pull a gun on him and take care of Bruce Wayne, we see that Batman knocked her out. And Batman flying on the, the Batplane. That issue ends and we get into the backup story uh, titled Marital Abyss. We see uh, a different take on Francine Langstrom. She was she married uh, Kirk Langstrom, who was the man bat. But we actually find out that she was uh, a spy from Edie Caldwell. Sacre bleu! So she was basically instructed to marry him uh, and uh, deliver intel on his uh, man bat serum. So while she was doing that, essentially, she basically took the serum, and the serum that she took, I think, was a bit. She concocted it a bit herself, and it's a bit different. Gave her a bit of a bloodlust. And uh, essentially was uh, was derived from the wrong bat, not the same bat that Kirk used. So she's a bit more of an evil man bat or woman bat, however you want to phrase it. So she gets in a fight with uh, Kirk, who becomes a man bat. And uh, while she escapes and flies away, she says she, that she is free to be continued. So this is uh, part two in the Wrath story, if we're not counting the annual. My question is, how, how, would, how did you guys take to the scene of uh, Alfred basically doing Bruce's detective work while Bruce kind of play it fast and loose with a secret identity. That, that scene in particular kind of struck out, struck out to me. Uh, I thought it was interesting. I, I, I kind of liked it, although I did think it was a bit... It's kind of stretched credibility that Bruce would kind of be that uh, less than sneaky in terms of investigating Caldwell. So that scene in particular, I'm interested to see what you guys thought about it. I think it was a little bit odd, um, specifically because maybe one thing if Batman was sneaking around being Batman investigating Caldwell... But the fact that Alfred is just walking around as the butler or the driver for Bruce Wayne, I don't really understand how you know he'd be able to. And he's not obviously doing it sneakily, so realistically, if someone saw him, how are they not going to wonder what the heck he's doing? So that was a little bit odd. the 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 point where uh, Bruce is you know playing fast and loose with his secret identity, I didn't really mind that. I thought it was kind of. Amusing. I think it was kind of interesting that they, in one way or the other, relate you know, uh, referenced Batman Incorporated without actually referencing it. Um, it. It was kind of interesting. At the same point, I mean, obviously, the, these these two characters are a play off each other. One's the bad version, uh, you know, tons of weapons. The other one's the good version with no weapons and just these gadgets. 
they are the, like a mirror image of each other. And there, this happens a lot with a lot of the different Batman characters. It's happened with Harvey Dent. Um, it's happened with uh, Tommy Elliot, where these characters are a mirror image of Batman. So I, I don't really mind it. I think it's kind of interesting. Obviously, um, it, Caldwell reveals that he is, in fact, the Wraith in this issue. Um, the fact that there's two things that are kind of odd. The fact that the bat plane flies up to Caldwell Industries skyscraper in the middle of the day and Bruce Wayne just happens to stay in his uh, karate uniform and climb up the ladder into the bat plane is a little weird. Um, I found, I, I don't really understand how nobody would be able to see that. It's a skyscraper. That was a little bit weird. Um, and then two seconds later, he's he's in the bat suit and he's telling him, oh, this is Batman and I'm coming for you. So, I, I don't know. I'm not really sure how I felt about it. It definitely stood out to me, that scene, and the you know, ridiculousness of throwing him off a building. Not so much... Well, I mean, it was strange that he throw a man off a building. But the fact that he won, and I guess that tempers were high and he got a bit carried away. But um, just that it was a bit strange, and I'm not sure if I liked it or not. Um, read in the right tone, you mentioned that kind of... That, Bronze Age kind of like a bit more light-hearted Batman. Like, I mean, this take isn't necessarily light-hearted, but if you read it with that sensibility, like if it's written in that way, um, then it it kind of makes it a bit more fun, and it's kind of just like, oh, it's just Batman. It's that kind of world where like you can be really obvious and no one realizes he's Batman where it's kind of like, Oh, he must be Batman's friend, Bruce Wayne, that <laughs> kind of thing, which like, if it's done in that way, then, uh, it's kind of fun. I guess it all depends on how you read it. Again, if it's meant to be written in that way, um, I, as much as I like the art, I think that it's a bit too serious for that style of writing, but I don't know if that's the intent or not. So, um, uh, it, the only real issue I had was that the fact that he kind of let himself beat Caldwell. The fact that they kind of had a sparring match, that that kind of just felt like kooky comics, and I enjoyed that aspect of it. But the fact that he kind of then went uh, too far with it and, and tried to defeat him and like get, like really show off his ability as a martial artist, and, you know, that... that felt a bit too far for me but i still overall guess i enjoyed the scene that was interesting i had to flip back a couple times to figure out what why they were outside um i knew something bad was going to happen and someone would would fly over the edge i was getting a little nervous as to how easily he was sort of letting information slip through. Uh, just the fact that he said, even if you are right, I wouldn't give it to you. And I thought, why are you even letting him know that? I mean, I guess we're in this Batman Inc. world, perhaps. I, I don't know if this is in continuity or not. But I guess we're all aware that Bat, uh, Bruce Wayne is, in fact, funding Batman. Or are we in a separate continuity where it's a surprise? No, they, um, they've, 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 they've mentioned before in other titles. Okay, so I guess maybe we shouldn't be surprised at all. I liked how Alfred was often doing his own thing. I mean, Batman has been... Oh, wait, this is... Is this zero year? No, this is... Okay, so confused. Um, 
Bat, Bruce has been really hard on Alfred since the death of Damian Wayne. So the fact that he has finally trusted him to do something is actually a step in the right direction. Uh, Unthreatening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and maybe he and he said, you know, it's dangerous. And I was I was shocked to see that um, Alfred hesitates. He's like, um, okay, sir, and. I don't know. You can always trust Pennyworth to do a good job, but now I'm just afraid like his life is in danger and what's going to happen. But maybe this will be the, the connection that the two needed to get back because once Bruce realizes he could have lost Alfred, they'll be BFFs again. Maybe he'll die. That would be shocking. Yeah, that, that would never happen. Um, yeah, I, think, I think I like this scene overall. I think that like he's a bit uh, out of the usual, but... I mean, I like John Lehman's take on Batman so much that, like, I don't think he's done anything that, like, I outright just dislike. So, um, there's a, I do say kind of like to go back to what Dustin had mentioned. I still don't think it's flat out obvious or even stated that Caldwell is the Wrath. It certainly is looking that way. Uh, you know, they suspect him, and, you know, he doesn't say, I am, the, I am Caldwell, but he does say, like, you know, I am preparing for a war. So I do think there's, there is room for there to be a swerve or a twist. I mean, if he is, who cares? But I, I would be interested to see where the identity does lead to eventually. Um, I don't have any particular strong thoughts one way or the other on the, on the Francine Lindstrom uh, backup story. If anybody would like to talk about that, then feel free. Otherwise, I just wanted to mention it in case anybody had any thoughts on it. It's, you know, it's unfortunate. Um because there is a lot of potential with Mambat, and I feel like this particular story has just really fallen flat for me. And I just remember back, you know, in the 70s and everything when they had Mambat, and of course he was a bad guy at first, but then he got his own backup with Detective, and he would even team up with Jason Bard. So I'm hoping if this backup continues, we get to a good place with the character because now it just seems like it's all over the place and people are, well, people, the writers are throwing in like the kitchen sink, like all of a sudden she was a corporate spy. So I'm just unhappy with the state of affairs with that character right now and I hope that we can get back to a a good spot with him. I've uh, so far really enjoyed the backup stories and this one I didn't enjoy so much and I've... Like, I have no real knowledge of Francine Langstrom other outside of the few times she appeared in the uh, animated like animated series and stuff. So I don't really know why I care that it's different, or like I don't even know how different it is. But I'm I'm sure that she wasn't always a spy for some secret agency. But uh, regardless, I like this issue a lot. Less just because you know there are so few happy marriages in comics, and it's another one ruined. But oh well. She reminds me of the the Newton character on Jurassic Park, where he basically his job was to get the form, well, the DNA from the different aliens. I'm not aliens, sorry, <laughs> dinosaurs. I do think that I I really agree with Joe. It is feel like a bit another like you know let's take something nice from the old continuity and f it up because. You know, evil is fun to write. Um, although she does say that she you know she didn't kill him, so like we, we might be as, there might be a swerve as to where it's going. And not that I'm majorly invested in Kirk Langstrom and Francine Langstrom's marriage, but I don't know it's, it's a pattern with with, the, with these kinds of characters, like like they did with the Teen Titans and how they turn Wonder Girl into such a prat and all that kind of thing. It feels like the kind of same sort of thing, but uh, I suppose we'll see where it goes. I think the the thing in my mind is that. 
it never really I never really reading this I didn't really get this I, I didn't get this feeling that she married him specifically to get close to him because she was already close to him in the laboratory I I'm kind of at a loss because I'm trying to understand how she went from you know just being his lab assistant being around him being involved with everything that she needed to be involved with related to the serum to her deciding to marry him. That's the kind of like the the disconnection that I'm getting from this. I don't really understand why she decided to marry him unless she actually does love him and wants to be with him. If she does want to if she does love him and want to be with him, maybe if he creates some sort of antidote to help her, then, you know, it'll be okay and maybe they can become the man bats uh, the man bat couple that isn't uh you know, isn't the the bloodthirsty one that she's been using compared to the one that he's been using. So I think it's interesting. The other thing about this is the fact that the last time we saw these characters, it was kind of weird how she just randomly became a man-bat, or that we knew that she was one, but they never really explained it, and how this happens now, that was a little strange to me, uh, as far as the fact that she was a man-bat, but then it's explained, uh, I don't know if it was last month that they, they dealt with them, I'm having a hard time remembering if it was last month or not that they dealt with the, the man bats. I'm sure it probably was, but when I read that, I was like, "Wait, when, how did she become a man bat? When did that happen?" And then all of a sudden, it, it happens here. So I don't know. I, I see this becoming something because the, if she does become like the evil one, it is going to be kind of a punch in the face yet again because it's completely different than what we have known. He was always the one who needed to control his urges when he was man bad. Not necessarily killing people and things like that, but you know, he was always one of the, the those people who, you know, he was like I don't know a better way of putting this, I guess take a shot, but he was like the Hulk hey. where basically Francine was Betty Ross. Uh, Betty Ross, yeah. So uh, where she would be able to calm him down and get him to, you know, be be a little bit more non-violent um and this time around it's it's reversed where it looks like he's gonna have to do that for her or figure out something else so i'm not i'm not i'm not saying it's gonna be bad right now i'm gonna give it a little bit longer before i make past judgment on it but uh it, it i'll just wait and see what happens in terms of your your thoughts about rough maybe not being ed caldwell uh, I definitely felt that up until Wrath made an appearance in Caldwell Industries. I, I guess there is still a chance for it to be a curveball, and definitely in the last issue, it's kind of left pretty open, so I think there's still a chance, but I felt that pretty definitively it was him. But if it's not, then uh, then I'm definitely interested to see who it is, and uh, congratulations to Mr. Lehman. I'm wondering, since we've got this huge, this war that's almost going to be waged on um, GCPD, two questions for you. Do you think this will somehow uh, impact the relationship that Batman currently has with Gotham City Police Department? Because it seems like it's okay. I mean, he and Gordon have some rough spots sometimes, but for the most part, it seems like he's in a better position than like we've seen him in Batman Year One. Uh, that story. So do you think it'll be impacted just from, like, collateral damage? And another thing, do you think this could potentially lead to, like, um, a GCPD book no. in the New 52? No? Yeah, I don't see I that. I just happening. wondered. Okay. I mean, 
there's plenty of things that are happening in all of these different books involving the GCPD mm-hmm. where they could have their own book. But the only way that I think it could work and actually be successful is if they actually were dealing in that book specifically, they were dealing with all of these different things that were happening in the other books because it would kind of like be a, a continuous tie-in where, you know, but the problem is that there's the characterizations of the GCPD characters that they've been focusing on are very different in these different Batman titles. And that's the problem where if they did a book that was specifically focused on GCPD, it'd be very difficult to decide which characterizations to actually focus on. The other side of it is if it was something like Gotham Central where it was completely unattached from the other Batman books but was just telling the stories of the cops, that would be completely different. But I think the cops are focused on so heavily in so many of these different Batman books that it, would, it wouldn't work as a solo series at this point. I honestly don't think that, like, uh, I, I don't think that the New 52 is going to put invest in, I mean, nothing will stop them from putting more Batman books out, but I don't think they'll invest in, like, the, the, the man on the streets, like the GCPD kind of worry in Gotham Central. I'm not sure that's where their head's at. All, all their stuff is pretty much, like, like superhero, supervillain oriented right now. Yeah, and and they they tried to do that a couple of years back when they did Batman Streets of Gotham, which was supposed to be focusing on the everyday man and some of the lesser-known characters within Gotham City, but it got so far away from that and started focusing on nothing but Hush that it was it basically was like Batman Hush in, in, in the pages of that after the first couple issues. All right, so Detective Comics number 23, I'm going to give a total of 3.5 out of 5 Batarangs. Yeah, I think, I think <laughs> that's three for three with Dustin and me. I think that's fair. I mean, this was—I think this was a good issue. It wasn't as—I uh, don't know—salt. It felt actually kind of short to me, but uh, three out of five batterings, three and a half out of five batterings for sure. I agree, three and a half out of five batterings. I actually thought this was the best uh, issue of the batch that we did, uh, with the exception of the backup, which I didn't really enjoy. I'll give it four out of five. You're just trying to disagree with us all the time. Basically, I'm the female that apparently causes silliness, Joe. All right, so Detective Comics number 23 gets a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. That is all of our books. Let's throw over to John with Bad Books for Beginners. And welcome to another episode of Bat Books for Beginners. I am your host, John. And this week, we are starting No Man's Land. Now, this is a massive series. It lasted two years and ran consistently through every single one of the Batman books, except for Robin. And it is one of the biggest series that has ever been done in the DC Universe and is one of Dustin's favourite comic books. 
we're going to be doing this in trade paperback volumes. These have recently been released by DC and collect every single issue from the Nomad Land arc. They're released in four volumes and we will be covering each one. So we're going to start with volume one, then volume two, then volume three, then volume four. These volumes can be picked up quite cheaply on Amazon and they can also be found on eBay as well. You can also pick up individual issues as well. There is also another series of Batman No Man's Land trade paperbacks. There is about five or six volumes of those. However, they don't cover everything that was released and they only cover the main stories. Whereas the recent ones by DC have every single issue that was released over it. So in this episode, we're going to be tackling No Man's Land issue number one, Shadow of the Bat 83, Batman 563, and Detective Comics 730. This was written by Bob Gale and features art by Alex Maleve. So, before we start, a little bit of backstory. Gotham has been hit by a series of catastrophes. First, the Contagion Plague, which was way, way back in the Contagion issues that we covered. And then, in Cataclysm, it suffered a massive earthquake. All of these have resulted in the city being cut off by the government, leaving Gotham to struggle on its own. Batman has since disappeared after his failure to rescue Gotham as Bruce Wayne, which was chronicled in Aftershock and also Road to No Man's Land. He's been gone about three months and the story really picks up in about day 92, day 93 of No Man's Land, three months in, with Gotham slowly descending into chaos. Entry 001. No Man's Land. Day one. Dear Dad, this is harder than I thought it would be. This is me breaking the silence and telling the secrets. I wish there was another way to do this, and I pray that you'll never read these words. And the many words sure to follow. Someone has to keep the chronicle. Someone has to record and remember. And the only person left who can do it is me. We open with some soldiers discussing why Gotham was shut off. They turn away in a truck whilst the Air Force chase away a helicopter. We then move to a boy who steals from another boy. However, he is in police territory, so is caught. While another child steals some food from another one, but they run into Scarface's hideout and the boy is shot for the food that he stole. Whilst another boy trades an apple for some soup. The man he trades it with then trades it for a torch and eventually it arrives in the hands of the penguin who it is transpires is running a trade racket trying to control all the supplies in Gotham. We then move to Oracle who is well supplied and uses her information about where food is in exchange for information about what's going on in Gotham and she is developing a network of informants through that system. It turns out that Gotham has divided itself into a series of gang areas, with criminals fighting each other for control over these territories. Meanwhile, it transpires that Batman has not been seen for three months, and he sent Robin and Nightwing away. We then move to Jim Gordon, who is trying to secure his corner of Gotham. One of the officers fixes the bat signal, but Jim smashes it, saying Batman has abandoned Gotham. 
It then moves to an abandoned building that has been tagged with a Batman symbol, and we see a familiar silhouette stood above it. We then cut to Oracle, who is told that Batman is back in Gotham. Meanwhile, the police take another block. They then plan to take back Old Gotham, using a war between the low boys who hold Old Gotham and the street demons who have a territory that borders theirs. Whilst this is happening, it turns out that the new Batman silhouette is in fact a new Batgirl, and she saves two children from being attacked and claims the block for Batman. It then moves back to Gordon, who covers the street demon sign with a low boys one. However, they are caught by some of the street demons. However, they are saved by Piet, who kills the street demons and proceeds to set it up to look like the street demons were ambushed by the low boys. It works and provokes a war between the two, but Jim has to wrestle with his conscience over it and if it was the right course of action. We then move to Alfred, who has been living in Gotham in disguise when he is attacked. However, he is saved by Batman, who has returned. At the same time, the police take both the street demons and the low boys' territory, reuniting Barbara and Jim. Jim sends the gangs off into other territories, stating if that they come back or stay in the police territory, they will be killed, but not before Pierre has killed one of the gang. Whilst Batman meets the new Batgirl, who it turns out is Helena. Batman does not approve of it, however he doesn't disapprove either and will allow her to stay in the role for the moment. With his return, Batman starts to tag areas marking his territory. However, Jim refuses to believe that he's back and paints over the tag that he sees. And at the same time, Batman turns his attention to Scarface's territory. Batman sets up a trap for Scarface with the promise of a large case of ammo. It works and he is able to take them all out easily. He then goes out in the daylight dressed as Batman, but is part of a plan as the remaining members of Scarface's gang shoot to kill him, but he gets up again, meaning that he was restoring the myth that he is unkillable. And Batman, through this, takes control of the Scarface's territory. So, overall, I thought that this was actually very well written. It sets the story up well. It explains what's been going on in Gotham for the last three months and how everyone has been coping. It's been really interesting to have a look at and see how everything is developing in Gotham itself. I thought some of the actually most interesting bits were the fact that it wasn't really that much on Batman. We saw what it was like for ordinary, everyday people and their struggles throughout the last three months. How people were surviving, how children were surviving, and various things like that. And it was quite nice to see a bit more variety and a bit more of Gotham as well. I also thought that the stuff involving the police as well was very interesting. To see how they're having to deal with a changing face. They're no longer really technically the police, nor are they part of Gotham. But there is a argument over whether they should follow the rules or whether they should go out and do it on their own. Which is embodied by Jim Gordon and by Captain Pierre. Each wants to tackle the criminal element in their own way. 
Piet wants to go on an all-out offensive and is a fan of military history. He wants to use actual bloodletting and violence to try and control the neighbourhoods and to make sure that they're able to take them, whereas Jim wants it to be much more a grassroots movement and for them to be the popular ones, taking it back and doing so where they can to avoid violence, but if they have to, then they have to resort to that. And I thought that was perhaps some of the most interesting bits in there. I thought the artwork was very good as well. It was very nicely detailed. Gotham looked really decayed and crumbly and horrible. And it doesn't look like it would be somewhere that you want to live. It looks like it's on the edge of lawlessness. It's really struggling and having issues with how it's going to deal with all of its problems. And I thought that was really, really well drawn. Overall, I would give this... Four out of five batarangs. I think this is a really strong start to the No Man's Land series, and I think it is very, very interesting to read, and I certainly would recommend picking it up. So there you have it. That's the start of No Man's Land. We're going to be covering about four issues every episode, so it's going to take a little while. As you can imagine, there are two years worth of comics to get through. But next episode, we will be dealing with four more comics from the Batman series. We will be covering Asriel, Agent of the Bat number 51, Batman, Legends of the Dark Knight 161, Batman, Shadow of the Bat 84, and Batman 564. So tune in next time to see what I think of those four issues. But once again, thank you very much for listening, and now I'll hand you back over to Dustin and the guys. That was Bat Books for Beginners. Uh, Let's move straight into our listener Q&As. We do have a couple of different ones to go over. I'm going to read these in uh, non, uh, non-chronological order, just specifically because some of them are going to require a little bit more discussion than others. So, first up, uh, Terry says, I like the comments you made about Batman Incorporated number th- eight, 13 being a parody or being really meta. I think that part of this was not just due to whatever bad blood there might have been between Morrison and DC, but I think it is also a kind of statement about the nature of superhero comics since he's largely done writing the genre for now. For for instance, when Talia says, I know you like to keep the stakes clearly black and white, and how that whole scene was so predictable, almost to the point of being campy. I really think it was a statement about the expectations that many fans, and DC of late, have for this type of comic. Formulic stories with clear stakes but muddy consequences. What do you think about this idea that this issue is as much as much a statement about superhero comics in general, in addition to it being the end of this title and the end of Morrison's run on the Batman titles? Well, I think that a lot of what Morrison did in general, not necessarily specifically with this last issue, um, is a statement of certain things. That's why we were introduced to Batmite, and we were introduced to... Uh, you know, they focused on Bat-Cow. There's a lot of, like, odd things that, you know, don't make a lot of sense, but because it's a superhero comic, Morrison can pass it off as, it, it you know, it can work in whatever way. Um, 
obviously the, the the very end everything was really painted black and white except for Kathy Kane. Um, a lot of I think of what happened in Batman Incorporated 13 was we we talked about this a lot on the last issue, so I don't want to delve too much into or, you know retread too much on what we've already said. But basically, it just comes down to. Um, this is the end of what they wanted to do, so they tried to build the stakes as high as they could, and I think that they built the stakes pretty high, especially with Damien dying so, uh, not, I wouldn't say early, but, you know, so many issues prior to this finale, that they, they did build it to a certain point, I just don't think that the, the finale was as large as it could have been, especially coming from Morrison. Yeah, I'm not gonna repeat much of what I said in that review. But I do, I, I kind of do maintain that like Morrison was kind of taking a, a tiny bit of piss out of like the current status quo. Although, I mean, you've, if you listen to the Fat Man on Batman, his interview talking about the issue, he sounded he did kind of come off as sounding genuine about his idea to the narrative of the issue, like with uh, talking to Gordon and Batman, harkening back to the first scene in Detective Comics 27 and all that. But he does. I do think there is still a bit of. Uh, muddling up with you know certain tensions from DC and certain tensions from Morrison that you can kind of read into the issue. That's my opinion. I'm not saying I don't want to say that that's you know a true opinion to have. I definitely think that the meta element is there, and I think that's a, a, not a trope, but that's something that Morrison likes to bring into it. You know, even as far as writing himself into his own comic books. But um, I, I I continue to say that I. I disagree i don't think that there is any bad blood or and i didn't read any of that if there is but i you know i don't know again not speaking for him so next uh we have a comment from stella she can read the <laughs> what was my comment <laughs> wait my comment well i am sorry for missing a story about kitty pride in the dcu because i was listening to the batman annual i think it was batman right I would also comment that having Bruce use the town formula, because this was a Q&A on the other one, for Damien uh, would be a bad idea. Uh, just because Damien's interaction with one of the talents during that entire crossover, you could really tell that he despised that life and he was really trying to change. So I think it would just be a bad idea. And finally, I am not the catalyst for all the silliness on the show. Yes, you are. Just, a, just about 60% of it, I'd say. Six hundred percent. No, 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 no. We were serious and you know manly, manly men when when we were on this doing this show with Josh, and then you came along and just you know what? You know, sillying it up with your know. voices and your, your laughter, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and your general positivity. And now look at us. Look at us now. All right, so next up, Richie says, Have you guys noticed that DC's mid- and lower-level artists, no offense or disrespect intended, tend to not be as consistent as the Marvel artists? For instance, Justice League of America number 7 really suffered halfway through, as did Suicide Squad. I have to say Nightwing's artist, though not bad by any means, is certainly a step back from Barrows and Booth, though Pissarin on Batgirl is certainly an improvement. Though aesthetics are ruled by individual tastes, does poor quality of art hinder you from enjoying a well-written story? And does that relationship carry one reversed? Poorly written story, high quality art. On a side note, have you noticed an artistic decline? I'm thinking, 
especially in terms of the Green Lantern books, but I know Superman's getting some A-plus talent with Aaron Cooter. Um, so I think what it is is the problem is that because DC is, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but because DC has m- made it very clear that they are all about trying to get these books released on time, as that was one of their large pushing points with the new 52 is that they were going to make sure that all of their books were released on time obviously there's been times where the books have been delayed and books have shifted here and there um, from third week to second week and then other books have shifted the third week for whatever purpose at all who knows the actual reasons for it but they've shifted things here and there i think what happens is the the books specifically some of the books that you mentioned with suicide squad and just league of america number seven the problem is that I think the main artist that's attached to the book is originally doing the art, and then they realize, crap, I'm not going to finish. DC finds one of their mid- or lower-level artists and says, we need you to hurry up and finish this, and that's what they do. Uh, there's not very many big-name artists that are going to be able to crank out something very quickly in a very short amount of time, if they're especially if they're finishing something from another artist, um, and that's we've seen that in multiple books, um, even here with some of the books that we reviewed here. Uh, Eddie Barrows, there was a couple issues where he only did the first half. There's been books where uh, the pencils were done by certain people on some pages, and then other people on other pages. So I mean, there's been a lot of disconnect, and a lot of it I think has to do with the fact that because they're so pressed for time and making sure that these stay on time, which is fine. I don't. I, I want the books to stay on time, but at the same point, it does hurt the art, and uh, really, it comes across to me as they're really trying just to push the stories, not so much about the artists. Also, because you know, every time they announce an artist is going to be on a book, they end up being on the book for three issues, and then they disappear off the face of the earth. Uh, I, I agree, Dustin, for the fourth time tonight. Um, I think that sh- when we started out with Nightwing, it was Eddie Barrows, and the artwork was eye-popping and amazing. And he kind of he stayed on for a few issues, and then like you know he kind of like like dipped in and out, then he was gone. Um, I think the strongest example of this is in um, the first Superman and Batman issue, where we had Jay Lee do like half of the issue, and then it came you know with, with what I considered to be a, a very lazy Ben Oliver. Um, and that kind of, that's kind of annoying to me. It's like I understand if you want to keep the books on time, I'm not going to fault you for that. That's not a bad thing. But don't put a superstar artist artist on a book and promote it if you if it's pretty well assumed that they're not going to last very long. That I don't like. I think that's dumb. And you know, have an artist be consistent. You know. Well, it's Ed Bennis was on Batgirl. They made a big deal about that him was a joke. Batgirl. He was only on it for three. Ethan Van Skyver was coming on to Batman: The Dark Knight. He was only on for one story arc. Not even had, a whole story uh, arc. Yeah, not even a whole story arc. And then we had, what was the other one? Uh, Brett Booth, they made a big deal about him going to Nightwing, which, don't get me wrong, I, I really liked, I, I honestly thought, I liked Brett Booth's art a little bit better than Eddie Barrows, but he was only around for three issues. They've done this, and like I've noticed recently, they're not making as many announcements about the artists as they have in the past, but for a very good chunk of time, for like the almost two years since the New 52 has started, they've made a very big deal about when these big you know, artists are coming to these books. And then it's like they announce it. They don't actually show up on the book until maybe a couple months after the fact. 
because they're they're announcing the artist is going to be on the book right before the book solicited, which is always going to be three months ahead of time. And so then you're going to wait three months to see the artist on the book, and then you're only going to get the artist for three months. So it's it's just it sucks. I don't know. It, 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 like they're just I don't really think they're giving the focus to the art as much as they should. You know, they're they're focusing on some of the books that are selling really well. I'm sure Greg Capullo, who is pumping out you know books on time and hasn't had an issue with pumping out stuff on time i'm sure you know dc's loving the fact that he can do that but then you had the one of the major pushes between uh of justice league was the the fact that jim lee was going to be doing the arts and how long did he stick around for he was one of the first ones to jump ship we all saw that coming though <laughs> yeah, yeah but it, it, like, like it's, it's, it's just don't do that you know if don't promote a storyline promote a run that that that's that always me. I mean, some of it's unavoidable, but some of it's just like, come come on, guys. You know how you know how artists work. Especially the best artists are always the ones that work the slowest, and they're always the ones that, that delay the books. So, don't don't you know put yourself in that situation. You're going to have to repeat. Going to have to replace them immediately. Just make it bi monthly. <laughs> I think like you will say good points about that. The other thing about DC's artists, I mean, I can't speak for. Marvel because I don't read any of their books but <gasps> there's a kind of house style, not house style but there's like a lot of DC books kind of look the same varying levels of talent but they all, a lot of them look very similar and it takes like the standout artists like Jay Lee and Travel Foreman and Chris Burnham who have that different style and like that, I think they get extra appreciation at least for me when an artist kind of stands out from the crowd and uh, yeah, so I, I look I look for those artists and enjoy them. And I would say I don't specifically seek them out. I definitely notice that they're different, but I don't tend to like their their type of art style. All right, so next up, Alex says, Thank you, as always, for delivering such great episodes. I'm very appreciative of you discussing my comments. And yes, I was referencing a lot of Snyder's run with my previous comment. I just think Batman should be a compassionate character that inspires hope and goes above and beyond in doing what's right. The only hope I have is for the next issue to be better. After reading Batman number 23 for the sake of Scott Snyder's child's life, I'm very happy I'm in the minority for being underwhelmed by the issue. I thought the beating was a bit ridiculous. It reminds me of a child thinking they're more mature because they watch R-rated movies. (laughs) I rolled my eyes at the I shall become a bat part homage to year one. What is your favorite Batman costume and artist? My favorite Batman artist is Jim Aparo. My favorite costume is his year one suit. Thanks, guys. Well, I, I will touch on the... We Obviously, we already reviewed Batman 23, but um, I do want to mention that, you know, he, he Alex points out for the sake of Scott Snyder's child's life because how many times have we heard Scott Snyder swear on his child's life that certain things are going to happen and then certain things don't turn out exactly the same way but anyway um to his actual question that he's asking uh favorite costume and artist um for a long period of time my favorite artist was scott mcdaniel okay um that's kind of it's kind of shifted here and there uh some of the stuff that he did in the early 2000s um, with Batman, uh, it was like the early. There was a bunch of issues in the early 600s. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was some of the stuff that I really liked. Um, I still like him, but uh, honestly, some of the more current stuff um, that that I've seen 
that I like is I, I am really liking the... I do like Brett Blue's art. He hasn't really drawn Batman a whole lot. Um, he's popped up here and there. But uh, Brett Booth is, in my mind, um, it's still got that that feel that Scott McDaniel did. Um, but probably my all-time favorite uh, artist is, is hands down Norm Brayfogle. So. I don't know if I can list off just one. I can just kind of briefly go through like a, like a handful and not take up too much time. Um, uh, well, first of all, costume... Uh, not necessarily like, like basically the Batman animated series costume. Not so much that design specifically, but the black and gray with the blue highlights. Oh, you know, was basically like, you know, it's basically black with blue reflected. That I always love. And you know, I'm kind of going back on. I used to like the single bat, but now because that's being overplayed, I, I miss the yellow the oval. <laughs> uh, and I do like a pouch belt. Um, artists, I agree with like Norm Brayfogle, classic Batman artist, one of the best of all time. Um, same thing with like uh, a tie between Neil Adams and Alan Davis. Both of them have that great, realistic, athletic approach to Batman. Jim Aparo, absolutely, especially in Death, Death and the Family. Uh, Bruce Tim, one of my all-time favorite Batman artists and favorite artists of all time as well. Um, and I love I love Jim Lee's take on Batman. I think his take on Batman is really really good. Uh, gosh, and just for old sakes, uh, Dick Spring. I think Dick Spring is, in these days, <laughs> underrated, which is funny considering he was like the biggest Batman artist of the Silver Age. Uh, favorite costume for me, I, I guess, is most commonly referred to as the '70s costume—the grey with the uh, the blue cape and cowl and gloves, the pouch belt, and the yellow oval bat symbol. Love that costume, and uh, doesn't get used enough. But um, as for favorite Batman artists. Uh, Obviously, I love Chris Burnham. Um, I think uh, Tony Daniel during his Batman IOP run was fantastic. I really like that artwork there. And uh, as as for classic ones, I mean, you think of Batman, you think of these artists. So Jim Aparo, uh, yeah, Jim Aparo and Neil Adams. But uh, you know, old Neil Adams, not Batman Odyssey Neil Adams. <laughs> Uh, I'll throw out the name Rags Morales uh, just because one of my favorite stories, period, uh, is Identity Crisis. And I thought that that was uh, just beautifully drawn throughout. And there are just some amazing covers as well as everything within is just amazing. Um, Favorite costume, that's really hard for me, especially just because um, compared to like like Batgirl or Spider-Man, perhaps. It's hard to uh, put one down, but I've really started to love more and more recently the Batman Beyond costume. I I just think it's awesome, and it's simplistic, but it's just really powerful as well. All right, so the last comment we have comes from a very curious... Why can't you say something like a listener near and dear to our hearts? I'll just leave it a curious listener. Uh, K. Rockmore says, Great episode as always, though I miss Stella. Here's a Q&A for you. Who, for each of you, are the top five fighters in the old DCU? So I would assume that K. Rockmore is referring to pre-New 52. So I've compiled my list, and I hope that my colleagues have as well, but uh, my list consists of top number one, Karate Kid uh, number two, I put uh, Richard Dragon three, I have Lady Shiva, four, Bronze Tiger five, Batman. Dude, we have like 
nearly the exact same list, although I will replace one of them. And in no particular order, because I could I could list them, but I, I'm not going to specifics. Uh, Karate Kid, absolutely. Bronze Tiger, absolutely. Richard Dragon, absolutely. Lady Shiva, absolutely. Uh, Cassandra Cain. I knew you were going to do that. I, well, I mean, I like, I, I, she is generally a better fighter. So, there you go. That's why I show my ignorance of the DCU, and I'll uh, skip this question if I can. I, I definitely, I realize... I don't know who the Karate Kid is, but the rest of them I recognize as great fighters, but uh, I wouldn't know where to place them on the list. Um, hey, thanks for writing in K-Rockmore. I have a sneaking suspicion that you're my friend, Kimberly Rockmore. Um, Bronze Tiger, Shiva, I'm going to throw out Wildcat as well. Uh, Ted Grant, I think he's an amazing fighter. Batman, and I also think that Black Canary, maybe she won't fall in the top five, definitely in the top ten, but... Uh, pre-New 52, she really had a lot of skills, and she went to bat against Wildcat and Shiva. Yeah, I put Canary, Batman, and Wildcat in the top ten, but not top five. Yeah, I would definitely put uh, Black Canary in the top ten as well. Uh, Wildcat is kind of a wild card because, he, because he, he's right. a boxer. He's not necessarily the, the, the best fighter. Um, compared to some of these other ones, and and the reason I ranked the certain ones that I did the way I did was because of the actual fights that occurred between some of them. Um, the reason I didn't put Cassandra Kane in that top five, even though she was trained by Lady Shiva and has bested Lady Shiva at, at uh, certain points, is because Batman has actually beaten some of the other people in the top five including Bronze Tiger and Richard Dragon in certain things. So that's part of the reason why he's up there. Cassandra Kane, she doesn't have as an extensive as of a history when it comes to some of the other people in that top five. So there's no way of knowing for sure whether or not she could best some of the other top <laughs> fighters. Don't make me argue. <laughs> We're not going to But uh, uh, K-Rockmore, I think that's a great question. Keep those great questions coming. All right, so that is all of our listener Q&As. I want to remind everybody you can leave your comments in or your questions in the comment section below the podcast post over on the website, or you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net with any questions, comments, or concerns. And they don't always have to be about the books, as Kay Rockmore blatantly (laughs) pointed out by asking a question that had nothing to do with anything that we're covering on the actual comic cast. So with that, I want to remind everybody to head over to the website for all the latest news related to movies, TV, merchandise, video game, and of course the comics. You can check out all the other podcasts we have to offer, including Batfans, Backhold Oracle, Taking Flight, Commentaries, Villain Wall, uh, New Normal Cast has is, is already been posted, but there's a New Normal Cast that you may not have heard yet. Uh, the Point Five Cast, which reviews a lot of the second tier books from the Batman universe, all those are available not only on the website but also on iTunes as well as Stitcher. In addition to that, you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for all the latest news and videos from the Batman universe, as well as join our Facebook group to chat with other Bat fans. And just a slight call out we are looking to add some staff to the website. If you are interested in reviewing comics for the website, uh, we are specifically looking for people to review not only books that we cover here on the Comic Cast, but also some of the second tier books, some of the third tier books, which would include all of the digital first series that are released on a weekly basis, um, whether it be in print or not in print form. We're looking at for people to review those. 
Um, especially since they're a little bit smaller, we'd like to try to cover those books, even though we don't cover them here on the podcast, as well as the other DC books that involve some of the other characters. Uh, we do have every intention of covering Forever Evil as it comes out in the next couple months, um, but there's all kinds of other stuff happening in some of the other books that aren't going to necessarily fall in with Forever Evil. So if you are interested in reviewing comics or you have some awesome ideas for some different types of things or you are an artist that would like to get your art featured over on the website send us an email and we will be sure to get in contact with you and hopefully try to set something up to get your stuff viewed by other bad fans and can i just say going off of uh what? Going off of what Dustin said, it's clear that you guys, you listeners out there, have your opinions um, on these books, and your opinions may match up uh, with ours, or it may not, and it'd be great to have different opinions throughout this site. Um, so I, I just really encourage you to, to write in. With that, that is everything. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. This is Jay. Oh, and this is Stella. Sorry. <laughs> You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. (laughs) See you next time. going to say something but your rant distracted me (laughs) it's fine it was entertaining (laughs) well Um, i mean they're all good points too yeah so what was the original question if i can it was about um maybe it needed to be in that particular room i don't know maybe that was a dumb statement i I, like i said i was still i was still trying to figure out what was going on with that it was the uh you know, it was the ball that he dropped down the cave in, I think it was the first issue, which is supposed to be like a 3D mapping ball that rolls through the wherever you send it and takes the 3D scan of it. And then it was being projected in the in his father's study, so it was basically showing the Batcave in that room, projecting it on imagine the, the Yeah, imagine the, the device that they had in the movie Prometheus that right. went through all the caverns yeah. and mapped everything. It's basically something like mm-hmm. that. I said white guy because in the comic she made it seem like his privilege and his color was one of the reasons why like she hated him. Like it didn't seem like they were um, Caucasian. It's and he's they're been Norwegian. dotting around they're, here. They're all very very white. Okay, but well, well then <laughs> I guess I should say white as in American, United Statesian. I, I don't mean to insult anyone with my way of saying white. Or Norwegian but. listeners. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> oh my God. We're actually quite popular in Siberia. <laughs> There's a fact. Stand by your man. Yeah. Give him two arms to cling to. <laughs> oh, this will be the bloopers, isn't it? Oh. Did she really ever love him? <laughs> to be hello. Okay, I'm about to hurt you. <laughs> no. 
Actually, oh, you go ahead, Joe. No, yours is probably more specific. No, mine's back to the um, the wrath story. Oh, so is mine. Um, <laughs> I was <laughs> going to say... And I don't know if you're intimidated by the main man, Dustin, and you're just wondering, well, what's it going to be like working under him? Is he going to crack the whip and make us all frightened for our lives? And I want to tell you... <laughs> Honestly, that it's it's one of the the best decisions I made coming over to TBU, the site, and the podcast as well. And he's a respectful gentleman, and he's a great friend as well. And so there's nothing to be afraid of to come over. And I just really welcome you to come on the site, and we really want to – we just want a, a variety of people writing for the site. I also said – Stella said that he's a gentleman, and so he, he won't harass you or anything. Not in a in a rude, disrespectful way. He'll no, tell you to get your articles in on time if you're two months late. He's not Mayor Filner of San Diego or anything. Dude, he's sitting right here. <laughs> was that okay, Dustin? Was that okay? Yeah, it was fine. Basically, I feel as if if anybody is interested, now they're going to think that I could be scary, and someone just <laughs> to make sure that they. Well, don't you can do what scary. you want with that. If you want to cut it out, then you can. Have a nice day.